Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. The book of James will be in chapter 1. The very end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 will be our text this morning. Like father and son, you've heard the phrase, and usually we use that expression when we're talking about the less desirable qualities of a child. Oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, you might have heard. Uh, Listen to his mouth. Look at his ways. Well, it could just as well be an expression of the positive things. Children do reflect their fathers. Sons do reflect their fathers, both in the negative and in the positive. We have that in mind as we consider Jesus' words that we must therefore be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven and so it may be known that we are from Him. So in becoming Christians, friend, we trade one father for another. No, not our earthly father, but the father of this world for the father of the new creation, the father who stands before and over all creation, our heavenly father, we speak of him. What must it be like to live as his son? What would that look like Exactly, a day in the life of a son of heaven's father. Let's read together these two verses. James chapter 1 verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word for us this morning. A simple passage, just two verses, and a kind of summary, religion that is pure and defiled before God the Father, is this, we know to listen up after a statement like that. But a passage like this does give us and can give us a bit of trouble. It can give us a bit of trouble if we read only a part of it. For example, uh, religion that's pure and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We might, we might define Christianity, uh, the faithful Christian life, the church's work, uh, true religion as a ministry of mercy, and give ourselves wholly and only to that. Well, that wouldn't be reading the whole passage, of course, not to downplay that important work. Uh, Or we might read that first part, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but he deceives, uh, but deceives his heart, this person is worthless, as if controlling our tongue is all there is to true, true religion. Or maybe we just read that very last part there, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And uh, we find ourselves in a kind of monastic Christianity, up se- separating ourselves. The trouble is out there. Uh, my job is to keep my distance and to keep our distance 
And Christianity is what I don't do and who I am not with. Well, this is a beautiful passage with balance and symmetry. We see there, it's not just there are things not to do, but there are matters to tend to. Um, There's a matter of mercy ministry that is outward, and then there is a keeping oneself unstained from the world. There's a connection with the world because we're connected with the suffering in the world, but then there is a proper separation of a kind. And all of this is for our meditation and reflection this morning. We go, we go wrong if we only take a part of this passage and miss the beauty and the balance and the symmetry of it, as there is a kind of a symmetry and a beauty and a balance to the whole of the Christian life. But we also go wrong if we read it apart from the rest of the chapter. Uh, this verse hangs here so perfectly. It stands on its own more or less, but isn't there more to Christianity and to true Christian religion than what is right here. The, the context of the whole book and James's concern for his readers does inform what he says and doesn't say here. There's nothing here about right doctrine. Apparently the church has that in order. Um, he's writing for a reason. But then even in the context of this whole first chapter, this little passage here comes at the end of what we've said is James's introduction to the book of James. James comes at us with a variety of topics. By the end of that first chapter, we're just sure there's no order to it. Well, we've seen that there's order to it and reason to it in the last couple of weeks. We've also said that the whole of the first chapter functions as an introduction. James is throwing all the stuff on the table. He's letting you see it all, and then he's going to pick up thing at a time throughout the rest of his book and expand on themes that he's brought up here. So he's planted all these little seeds. And in this last two verses of this chapter, he gathers up a kind of a summary of his introduction in order to tee off the rest of his letter. As an introduction, the whole of that first chapter provides an important context for these few verses. If these few verses focus on externals, if you could say that, behavior, Uh, how we live. It's on the practical side. That's all very good. Let us remember where James began his book, speaking to us about uh, our, our trials, calling us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, understanding the invisible work that God is doing when we do so, Uh, And because of the invisible work God is accomplishing in our trials to bring about steadfastness that brings about perfection and completeness that we might lack in nothing. Oh, James starts looking below the surface and taking our eyes and attention below the surface of things and how we need God's help to see below the surface of things. But he ends his chapter here, above the surface of things, if you will. Uh, The fruit of that is springing from that invisible, under-the-surface root. He began with what God is doing inside us, and now he ends his introduction, chapter 1, by showing us what that truth looks like on us. If he began looking underneath, 
with something of our uh, health care, health check file. Um, under the surface of things. The, the x-rays in your file. Yeah, you can't see that with your eyes. That's why you needed an x-ray, your MRI uh, report. Um, now here at the end, this is something like a brief journal in the life of a Christian. A journal in the day of a life of a Christian. But it's more than a table of contents for the Christian's life. And it is kind of that. Uh, what you're not going to find in the Christian's life and what you ought to find in the Christian's life. Um, it's a table of contents for the rest of the letter. For in chapter 3, 13 and following, he'll address the matter of a holy life unstained from the world. At the beginning of chapter 3, he'll address the matter of the tongue at some length. In chapter 2, he'll speak of our impartiality, uh, rich and poor, our care for those that are downtrodden. Uh, so here in this little passage, we have a nice summing up of the introduction and a nice summing up of the whole rest of the book. And so it needs its own sermon. Two verses. An intro for the book and a table of contents. Well, before we get into this matter of how we may bear the likeness of our Heavenly Father in our earthly lives, miraculously so, I want to deal with this jarring, terse statement that he makes. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James is direct. James does not pull a punch. He is intending to provoke. And I want us to spend a few moments on how to hear him so that you'll hear him and be provoked uh, the right way according to your own nature at this moment as a hearer. Two kinds of pretend. C.S. Lewis in Beyond Personality, a volume is hid. There's a chapter called Let's Pretend. It was originally a broadcast radio segment. Um, and he faces head on how we might make sense of the Bible's language concerning taking off evil and putting away filthiness. Something that earlier in our very chapter, we've been told to take off filthiness and rampant wickedness. We are just left to ourselves, abundant storehouses overflowing with wickedness. Some of us are smarter in how we go about that and more subtle in how we go about that. And there are earthly restraints on that, and that's all very good. Nevertheless, the human heart in Adam is capable of untold godlessness. And we know it on our worst days of the things that we finally let come out of our mouths. Well, Lewis addresses this matter of pretending and you may feel that in coming to a command like this, uh, he does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, uh, um, you know, caring for widows and orphans, keeping oneself unstained from the world. There's a description here of the Christian that is probably way better than you. And I can relate with that. And, and a feeling of being disingenuine in disingenuous in in a play-acting obedience to this passage. 
For you don't have God's compassion on the hurting like you ought, although you visit them. Um, You may bridle your tongue, but you sure wanted to say that thing. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Well, don't we know that sin comes from within us? It just feels like we're way behind as we come to this passage, and there's really no hope for making it to this target. Well, in that case, we may feel like it's just fake theater. Ah, says Lewis, yes, but don't forget there are two ways to pretend, a good way to pretend and a bad way to pretend. There's a bad way to pretend that conceals what is inside. There's a good way to pretend that seeks to change what is inside by external obedience, not depending on external obedience for our righteousness before God, but understanding that it is obedience nevertheless, and it is from faith if we're seeking to please him and desiring to be changed inwardly, even if our whole heart is not in it. Concealing what's inside versus seeking to change what's inside. Praying even as we obey outwardly that the inside would be transformed. There's a, there's a pretend that's seeking to deceive other people with our actions and behavior. And then there's the pretend that's seeking to develop as a person. Because this is where we pray we are headed. There's a pretend that seeks to manipulate with our actions and our life the opinion of others. And there's a pretend that seeks to grow in maturity. So I want to acknowledge the tension that we all should feel when we read a description of maturity like this. You're not all the way there. And James isn't interested in long footnotes to qualify himself. Remember, as we'll say every week, we all stumble in many ways. That's a quote from James. Stumble many ways, we all. Nevertheless, he holds this out for us. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There is a person who engages in religious ritual, going to church and all the trappings in order to appear and to feel religious in the heart. Is that you today? Are you here in order to appear to others and to to feel the good feeling of being religious in the heart? without respect to God. But there is another person who engages in religious ritual, if we could call it that, the trappings of religion and the engagements of religion in order to express the reality of what is in the heart, even if it is the reality of what is in the heart in part, the beginnings of all that God is bringing about change to accomplish. Well, to land our reflections on this, James is not writing to fluster and frustrate and confuse oversensitive souls, if I could say that. He wouldn't write like this if that was the case. There are other volumes in our Bible for the oversensitive 
soul. So just know if that's you. He writes to expose and to correct and to help all of us to know an insensitive soul. By an insensitive soul, I don't mean a rude soul, although this church was dealing with quarrelsome uh, individuals and bitter jealousy and fights among people and cruel words with one another. No, I don't mean rudeness. I mean uh, deadness. Uh, There's nothing less sensitive than a dead body. It senses nothing. We have been brought forth by the word of truth, James says, and so we are now sensitive to God. We care about his opinion of us. We even are concerned that we don't care enough about his opinion of us. So understand that the churches that James is writing to are having major trouble and they have let the weeds grow way too long and a matter of distinguishing is in order and he is writing concerning anyone who thinks he is religious. If anyone, he's not saying you, but among them, no doubt, there are some who are playing the religious game. And self-deception is a matter of concern. Two kinds of pretend. One is bad. The other is just fine. Now, our threefold likeness, our threefold likeness to our heavenly Father. We've encountered the Father already in this chapter. You remember that God is the one who gives wisdom generously to anybody who asks. He stands ready to help, to lead, to guide. The context of that is to give us wisdom for our endurance through our various trials. Whatever that trial is you're enduring, God is there to answer a prayer that you would pray and asking for his wisdom as you navigate that faithfully. We've also encountered that very same God who is the generous giver of every good and perfect gift. And what is that very best gift that our God gives but the gift of the new birth? For he is the God who has brought us forth by the word of truth. Remember that? That is how generous he is. He's made us completely new. We are born in Adam, enslaved to this old creation. And that old man... And we have been born again, as Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if your faith and your hope is in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and new life, then you've been made new, you're sensitive to God for you're alive to him, and he is there to answer your prayers for wisdom, to see that you endure through trials with joy. But what does this life look like exactly? That's where we arrive now at the end of the chapter. What does it look like for a life to be guided by the generous wisdom of God? What does it look like for a life to be lived according to the life of God himself born in us? The fruits, first fruits of a new creation, new life. Well, it looks like, it looks like this right here. Now, we'll put it into three Three headers. First, God's children talk like the Father 
talks. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. From this imagery of a bridle, I take it, which, is, which would be uh, used to steer a horse, a large, powerful animal, to be steered by a small thing. We'll spend more time on this matter of how the tongue steers the body and how we can steer the tongue when we get to chapter 3. But even right here, I would conclude that we could say the tongue is a wild animal. Think of that. Your tongue is a wild animal. Your tongue is out of control. If it is not, controlled. It does not control itself. It can get more savvy and more sophisticated in how it pursues its ends, but the human tongue is capable of untold damage to your relationships and your life, certainly your relationship with God and all of that. The tongue is like a wild animal. In our gossip, we are wild with our tongues. In our slander of one another, we are wild in our tongues. In our a little bit softer, throwing shade, we are acting wildly with our tongues. Seeking to make another person look bad, seeking to make another person feel bad, seeking through provocation to make another person act bad. So you can say, see, we can do all of that with our tongues. Our tongues are wild animals, destructive. I take it as well, though, that the tongue can be controlled. We get all that word from this, all of that from this word bridle here. Tongues are a wild animal that are out of control, but they can be controlled. And the church of all places in the world is the place where we have a bridle on our tongue. The place where we don't say everything we think. Where we don't say everything we might want to say. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. That is true. But sometimes there are things in the heart you shouldn't say. And it's okay as a Christian to wish you didn't have that thought in your heart. Or even to acknowledge that you, that you wish you wished you didn't have the thought in your heart. But to have the wisdom from God enough not to say the thing. To stop talking sometimes. If we're to be marked by anything, and we've got three features here, uh, three in our threefold likeness of our Father, it is that we, in practicing or pretending to be like God as He's changing us in the inside, sometimes our use of the tongue is out ahead of where our hearts actually are, so that we have to bridle our tongue and steer our tongue. Don't say that. Don't say that. Now that you've said it, you need to apologize for it, okay? So in our home, and I wish it was more this way, but it is this way that we apologize to each other for things that we have said. Um, And sometimes it's impressive how clear a family member is. Uh, 
I have slandered against you, I am sorry. That's good biblical terminology. Um, I, like you, am tempted to say, uh, I shouldn't have said that, but don't really want to say, I slandered. That's very, very clear. Um, But you'll see what happened was, and then story time. Maybe, maybe there's a venue for working something out that needs attention in a constructive manner. It's not in the context of the apology. Slander, gossip, malicious speech. And under this, you can stick all kinds of other descriptors. Angry speech, coarse jesting. Our tongue is a world of evil, James will say, not too far from this passage. But thanks be to God, it can be controlled. You can, with the Spirit's help, control your tongue. And with the Spirit's help, and great praise to the Spirit, we are a church where I think on the whole, we mind ourselves on this. We really don't have any kind of epidemic of slander or gossip or shadow groups teaming up on other groups or whole age groups talking about whole age groups. Um, I pick up on that kind of stuff. I'll tell you when that's going on, I promise. We have the everyday sins and confession and each of us are, are at our place in maturity But on the whole, as a congregation, I give thanks to God for his work in you, that you don't speak cruelly of each other, that you don't speak to one another in unkind ways. And I'm really thankful to be at this church for that reason, and I'm thankful to raise my children here. I'm thankful to invite my neighbors here. It makes all the difference what they'll hear in the hallways and what they'll hear in a small group, and what they'll hear across from the coffee table when they start to make friends with people in our church. We don't gang up on each other with our tongues, and that's a blessing. I know it is to you. All from that word bridle. Well, how does the tongue deceive our heart? Because that's what he says. Uh, The one who thinks he's religious, that supposes he is religious, and, and does not bridle his tongue, so it's just running wild. He says what comes to him. She says what comes to her. She has a nasty thought about that other woman, and it's waiting for the opportunity to come out. But deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. See, this individual, this individual's tongue is out of control. And they suppose that they are religious and like doing, doing well. So how does, how does that work exactly? I've pondered this and have two answers for us. In the first place, we can be tempted to define our religion. And he's using that word religion here, by the way, as a collection of rituals. It's not a negative term. It's not the normal term for the Christian religion in the New Testament. But this is a religious person, you see. And they're supposing they're a religious person, good with God and and before others. And yet they don't bridle their tongue. And so they are deceived, for they may, first, define religion in terms of the really big things. 
Here's some help from John Calvin. They who have put off the grosser vices, the really big things I'm calling them, the grosser vices are especially subject to this disease, diarrhea of the tongue. He who is neither an adulterer, nor a thief, nor a drunkard, but on the contrary seems brilliant with some outward show of sanctity, will set himself off by defaming others. And this he will do under the pretense of zeal. But really it is through the lust of slandering. So this is that Pharisee, you remember, Jesus spoke of the Pharisees who, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, who uh, don't murder or commit adultery, but he says, yes, but you're angry in your heart, you lust in your heart, and if you say fool to your brother with your mouth, cursing your brother in that way, you're in danger of hell's fire. Uh, So it's possible to be proud of yourself for all the great big sins you don't commit, then to speak about those who do commit those sins, or just of others in general, to let yourself get away with an unbridled tongue because of all of your moral achievement otherwise. The tongue is so small after all. I mean, you say it and the words are gone. So there's a particular temptation here for those presenting themselves as religious, being good on other fronts, but with an unbridled tongue, to deceive themselves as to thinking they are okay because they're good on their really big vices. Otherwise, secondly, some may be tempted to define religion in terms of those purely outward religious ritual forms. So this may be an individual who comes to church and signs up for the things and uh, presents themselves as religious in the community and maybe within a church. It's hard to do that here, and that's a sign of a good church, is that it is hard to sneak this in. In these churches James is dealing with, this had become normal enough that this person presents themselves as religiously qualified they're, they're checking the boxes, they're participating in the right rituals, they're showing up, they're seen, and yet they have an unbridled tongue. And they're, in this way, deceiving their own heart. And notice that we deceive our own hearts. We're not deceived, we deceive and are deceived by ourselves. Now, to be a Christian is to say, God, I need help lest I deceive myself Love my own lies about myself. All of this can be given away with the matter of the tongue. So, if you run your mouth and run your mouth and quote that person and say their name to somebody else and you're angry but you feel kind of good about it and it never occurs to you that you should never have said that about that brother or sister in Christ. Or it occurs to you that you shouldn't, but you don't care. Because you're going to say it anyways because of what they did. That is a scary place to be. I can't think any of our members who are in that category right now. Spend a little bit of time on that. I suppose you don't say everything you're thinking to me. 
But you can talk to each other about it and self-police on this. You know, we will say things, we will stumble in many ways with our tongues, but we need to confess our our sins, we need to acknowledge uh, when we have spoken wrongly. There should be a a healthy self-suspicion as a Christian that you may be sinning in the way that you're speaking, and it's okay to ask for help and to help one another with this. Well, praise God, our God and Father does not lie about us. He does not lie to us. He does not gossip about us. He doesn't doesn't go tell somebody else true things about us to make himself feel better or to make others like him more than us. He doesn't slander us. And he's got plenty of material on you. Plenty of material on you. No, he's a generous God. He is a good God. He knows all of your sins, and he has mercy on you for them in Jesus. Jesus, who didn't open his mouth at his own crucifixion, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an amazing Lord we have. The law of liberty frees us so that we are no longer slaves to our tongues. And that is part of what it means to be a Christian. That is true religion. Well, secondly, God's children looked after, look after those whom the Father looks after. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That language of purity and And defilement comes from the Old Covenant, even Leviticus, and what was required to be acceptable in the presence of God. Um, Jesus is that pure one who is undefiled, who offered up himself as a perfect sacrifice to God, and through whom we come, and we are accepted pure and undefiled before our Father. He does not count our sins against us. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. He sees us in his Son. We're righteous before him. I think the reason James is picking up that language here is he's speaking of and to some hearers who are proud of their religious observance. And he's using the language of religious observance even from the Old Testament. And how is he going to define pure and undefiled religion before God the Father? Well, it's not in, in, it's not in your typical rich, religious rituals. It's in the visitation of orphans and widows in their affliction. God's children look after those whom the Father looks after. And friend, when you visit with a brother or sister in our church or a neighbor in our community, and I'll point this in both directions, you're doing the Father's work and reflecting His care when you care for and meet the needs of the handicapped in our own church and the community who have all kinds of troubles that most of us do not, you are doing the Father's work and reflecting His care. When you care for widows and show an interest in a widow who is alone where they had a husband and Maybe this widow needs advice and counsel and help or even physical assistance or just time and companionship. This is our gracious Father's kindness to them through you and it reflects his heart. When you adopt 
an orphan, and you take a child that is without parents, a mother or a father, into not only your care, but into your very family to be a son or a daughter, you are reflecting the very love of the Father for orphans. When you spend time with a fatherless or a motherless child in our church, a child whose mother or father has passed, and there is a great need there in those instances, and when you observe that need and you move into that need and you seek to be the friend and the counselor to that mother or father that is left and a help and friend and support to the child, you're doing the father's work and reflecting his care. It is very Christian to do all of these things that I'm speaking of, even imperfectly, even with motives that are not pure entirely. You're reflecting the father's love in this Clement of Alexandria in 195 A.D. Although keeping parrots and curlews, might have said that wrong, the pagans do not receive the orphan child. Rather, they expose children who are born at home and yet take up the young of birds. But Christian... Here's the report on Christians in about that same time. Christians love one another. They do not turn away their care from widows, and they deliver the orphan from anyone who treats him harshly. He who has gives to him who has not, and this is done without boasting. Oh, that's true. Pure and undefiled religion. What a beautiful description of the Christian community in the second century. And this matter of orphans and widows on the page in James here has a familiar ring to it. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Or Deuteronomy 10.18, he, the Lord, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Or through the prophet Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In setting that cause and that care in contrast to the worship of idols, Hosea, they sacrifice in the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and the terebinth because of their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. This is the description of those who do not tend to the concerns of orphans and to widows. Well, who is he speaking concerning precisely to sharpen our understanding of orphans and widows just a touch? If caring for orphans and widows is an example of the kind of proof that God is at work in the world to save, a manifestation of the very heavenly life of God in his people, and we ought to want to know who he's talking about precisely. Well, it's obvious enough, a widow is one who has lost his or her spouse. In most cases, the concern would be, certainly in New Testament times, for the widowed woman who without a husband, would be financially destitute, 
without an economic means of providing for herself. Vulnerable in all kinds of ways. The Christian church and the Christian community cares for, looks after, and tends to widows in those situations. And the reason why I listed a whole variety of others who are vulnerable and destitute and downtrodden at the start is because this is an example of care for the helpless. Orphans, though. Clearly, this would include those children who have neither a mother nor a father. It would also include children who have only a mother or a father. Orphans and widows was itself uh, a single idea. Um, Orphans went with widows. Listen to this grave inscription from, I believe it was the first century. Envious fortune has done you wrong. This is an inscription as if written to the deceased. Envious fortune has done you wrong. Given tears to your mother in her old age. Widowhood to your wife. As well as makes an orphan of your poor child. A child whose father died would be a child orphaned through the death of his father. Who then is with his mother who is widowed. And together they are vulnerable. Together they are downtrodden. Together they are vulnerable to oppression and injustice and being taken advantage of in various ways. And together they are our concern. Now, the calculations have changed on where the church's attention must fall, depending on the region and the times and the church. But have your eyes open for orphans and widows and orphans and widows and those that need your care. And visit them, which includes presence in their lives, not merely getting things done for them or providing material for them, materially for them. But it it does also mean practically, this matter of visitation means to visit in order to meet their needs. And it may mean a need of companionship and friendship and counsel. And it may also mean a physical need of protection and support of one kind or another. And I'll trust you will know who needs care in your own life and in our church and what kind of care they need as you get close enough to them. And this is happening in individuals, between individuals all the time in our church at different levels. It's happening in the context of shepherding groups who have provided for, for, for the downtrodden uh, in, in remarkable and generous ways. It happens as a whole church through our benevolence fund, And by the way, give to the Benevolence Fund in addition to what you give to the general fund at our church. It always needs attention, and there are seasons when it needs a lot of attention because there may be souls in our church who need a lot of attention. And the more generous you are with that Benevolence Fund, the more flexibility our elders and deacons have to meet particular needs of members in our church that you may not even know about. So know that as you give to the Benevolence Fund in our church, that money is going through a process that is accountable in order to care for these very kinds of people in their various kinds of affliction. You've always done a good job of keeping that fund nice and full. Just a little note, it does need some attention, but that's not because of your neglect. So thank you for that. I praise God for it. It's a manifestation of his work in you. And let's keep that up corporately, even as we are busy helping one another 
individually. Visiting orphans and widows. This is personal for us, isn't it, as Christians? Because not only is that language of orphan and widow uh, resonant as we read through the scriptures, but so is that language of visiting. For God the Father is calling us to visit orphans and, wi- orphans and widows in their affliction, but is he not the God who has visited us in our affliction? In fact, this language of visiting, I think, is deliberate on James's part to call to mind God's visitation of his people. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. He visits his people in their affliction. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel in Luke, for he has visited and redeemed his people. A word concerning Jesus' arrival. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. Oh, salvation is like God, a sunrise, visiting us from on high after a long, cold, and treacherous night. Salvation is the Lord visiting you in your affliction, burdened as you are with sin and under the guilt of sin, where he takes it away and gives you his precious promises and his Holy Spirit to get you through your trials so that you can say you counted all joy in your trials. What a good God we have to bring you forth by his word of truth. No, he's a God who brings us forth by his word of truth, and he's a God who visits us in our affliction. And so we can bridle our tongues, brothers and sisters. We really can. And we can also visit the downtrodden among us and in our community with presence and with practical help. Ours is a God who has done that, and so can we. Now, thirdly and finally, God's children wear what our Father wears. This is that imagery of clothing again. We are to take some things off and we're to put some things on. We've been born again by the word of truth unto a new life. And so we put off filthiness and rampant wickedness and we keep ourselves unstained from the world. Some would say, There's no danger out there in the world, and that would be incorrect. Keep yourself unstained from the world. It can stain you. Someone else might say, uh, the only danger is out there in the world. Well, remember what James has said to us. He's not letting us get away with pointing outward for our own sins, for we're lured and dragged away by our own evil desires as we're tempted and then sin and that leads to death and he tells us it starts and ends with us. Nevertheless, what's in us can be brought out and provoked and stirred and enticed by that which is from without the world. We're not to hide ourselves away. We're present in the world in contact with widows and with with orphans. There's no picture of a monastic Christian life here. Nevertheless, our life is that which is different. We live differently. We do not deceive ourselves in our hearts that there is nothing to be afraid of out there, humanly speaking. No, we are being sought and preyed on in our feeds, on screens, on billboards, 
marketing to the sins that are present in our very own heart. Brothers and sisters, be careful. Brothers and sisters, if you do not keep yourself unstained from the world and tend to the inward world of your life as you live in the world, so as not to walk according to the course of the world, your religion is worthless. That is a sharp word from from James. It should have all of us on our toes. There are some behaviors to stop today. There are some places to stop going today. There may be a relationship to end today. Not with all of your unbelieving friends, but maybe with a colleague at work who is flirtatious with you, that needs to stop. Maybe with a website that you frequent or a device that you have that is not under your control right now, There are some things to put off, and there are some very practical applications with that I trust you will understand for your own self. Religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing, Martin Luther said. But praise God, the religion that our God brings forth in our heart is born of his very life, and that is hardly nothing. And I trust God's word is at work in you, his word of truth, so that you would bridle your tongue and not be a liar, a gossiper, or a slander. Let's not have any of that here, friends. So that you would seek out the orphan and the widow, the downtrodden of any kind in their community, and certainly in our church. Let us take very good care of each other, and especially those that are hurting in various ways. And let us keep ourselves unstained from the world. For friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. But our God is a good God and he is worth serving. And his law is a law of liberty. And these commands are freeing. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give you thanks for these sharp words that set us on edge. We especially give you thanks for that living and abiding word that is in us. You have brought us forth by your word of truth. You are about bringing us to completion and perfection so that we might lack nothing. You've given us your law, a law of liberty. We look into the word of Christ and we find freedom from our sin and we seek to follow him in love for you and neighbor and we find ourselves freed from these enslaving sins we've discussed today. And Father, we give you thanks for this church community, a place where we find your love and care for us and where we're able to express that love and care for others, albeit imperfectly, even, as we've said, kind of pretending. But one day you will make us complete so that there's no more pretending anymore. There's no praying our heart will catch up with our hands and our lips. We long for that day. Help us to long for it all the more as we sing now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.